0: This episode of The Great War Podcast is brought to you by Audible. The good folks at Audible are offering you, the listeners of The Great War Podcast, a free audiobook download when you sign up for a no-cost 30-day trial membership. To qualify for this offer, go to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. Whether it's for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 device, Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. If there's ever been a book you've wanted to read, but just can't stay awake long enough to read it, Audible has got you covered. There's something here for everyone. Give a quick browse through their catalog, and I'm sure you'll find something right up your alley. This week, I'm going to recommend Norman Stone's landmark study entitled The Eastern Front, 1914-1917. First published in 1975, Stone's study of the czarist War effort wrote a wave of newfound public interest in the First World War. Considering it was still the height of the Cold War and Soviet archives were strictly limited to outsiders, Stone's detailed analysis of Russian finances and economics is all the more impressive. So when you're done with this episode, remember to go to audibletrial.com forward slash podcast. No capitals, no spaces. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash podcast for your free audiobook. Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 34, Russia from the Ashes. For the past several weeks, we spent a good deal of time talking about the context and strategy leading up to the Battle of Verdun. Falkenhayn's goal of bleeding the French into exhaustion would not play out as smoothly as he had hoped. The determination of the French Second Army to hold both banks of the Meuse ensured that the German plan was a foregone conclusion. Without the advantage of the opposite Meuse Heights, the Germans were repeatedly checked, and under Pétain's policy of rotation and aggressive defence, the French were better prepared to weather the storm. For the remainder of the year, the two sides would remain locked in a battle either could ill afford to lose. For France, it was national prestige and the greatest test of strength since August 1914. For Germany, a cold, calculated gamble which could deliver her from insured destruction. But as the meuse mill continued to grind away, the war beyond France did not stop. Soon after the German attack, Joseph Joff recognized that the Allied strategy laid out at Chantilly was at risk if France's allies did not come to her aid. The British, still building in strength, responded by taking over a large sector of the front north of the Somme, freeing the French Tenth for service at Verdun. In the Mediterranean, General Cardona was prepping Italian forces for another assault into the Zanzo Valley. But it was in the east where things were starting to get interesting. The Russians were showing some remarkable resilience, and it's this crucial period between late 1915 to early 1916 when the Tsar state began to climb back out from the depths of the previous year. So this is what I want to spend this week discussing. With revolution looming, Russia was in a pretty interesting spot both economically and militarily and since we haven't talked about them since the Great Retreat back in episode 24, now would be a good time to go back and see what they've been up to. Although none of the belligerents were initially prepared to meet the demands of the total war, Russia was so far behind the curve they thought they were in first place. It wasn't that the Tsarist state lacked the material and manpower for such a commitment, quite the contrary. With a peacetime population of 170 million, supplemented by vast quantities of raw materials, Russia was actually better suited than most to meet the war's ferocious appetite. Indeed, when you stop and think about it, their experiences in the 1905 Japanese war should have given Russia a military advantage, having already seen the destructive firepower of industrial weaponry. Like the other belligerents, the news of the war was greeted with initial enthusiasm. In urban centers, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Tsaritsyn modern-day Volgograd, thousands turned out to cheer Tsar Nicholas's proclamation, and if lucky, to catch a glimpse of the reclusive man himself. The imperial anthem was sung outside the steps of the Winter Palace, where, just nine years earlier, guards had opened fire on demonstrators calling for constitutional reform. In the Duma, Russia's quasi-representative parliament, the various political parties on the left and right called a civil truce, and immediately approved the necessary credits to finance the war. With all the euphoria, it is not difficult to see why Russia saw the coming crisis so optimistically. Previous military and political embarrassments, notably the war against the Japanese and crisis over Bosnia-Herzegovina, had left a gaping wound in national prestige, and here was a chance to level the table against her enemies. Being the most religious of the great powers, Russia saw the war through a theocratic scope. Their orthodox Slav brothers in Serbia had been threatened by the allies of Lutheran, Protestant Germany. The war, they argued, was a noble cause, being waged in defense against an aggressive enemy, hell-bent on stabbing out the Slavic way of life. Alcohol sales were immediately banned to encourage sobriety, and army officers were expected to appear in freshly pressed uniforms at all times, a reflection of Russia's latest crusade and newfound purity. It didn't take long for writers and political leaders to begin referring to the conflict as the Second Fatherland War, comparing it to Tsar Alexander I's victories over Napoleon a century earlier. The reason Russia was able to march off in relatively good shape is largely credited to the work of one man, Vladimir Sukomlinov who, since 1909, served in the dual role as Chief of Staff of the Army and the Minister of War. Now, depending on who you talk to, Vladimir Sukomanov is either a visionary who guided Russia's military through one of its greatest overhauls in decades, or, particularly to post-revolutionary writers, a vain, corrupt individual who sought personal control over Russia's military. Never one to turn down a bribe, Sukomanov made a number of enemies throughout his time in office, alienating both conservative and liberal factions of Russia's aristocracy. But to be sure, Sukhamunov was known as a man who could get things done. Prior to the war, Sukhamunov was one of the few who took the lessons of the Russo-Japanese war to heart. He understood that the modern battlefield was a place where machines and industrialized weapons took center stage. Upon his appointment in 1909, he immediately set to work revamping Russia's dated program. Training was made more vigorous, and the first dedicated field artillery units were introduced. In terms of armaments, Russia's peacetime arsenal was equal to those of France or Germany. The standard infantry rifle was the 7.62mm Mosin-Nagant 1891 model with additional 4,000 machine guns. As a reflection of Zhukomanov's belief in the changing battlefield, Russia's war chest of artillery was one of the best in Europe. A basic 76mm field gun, of which 6200 were available, were just slightly inferior to the French 75mm, widely regarded as the best in the world at the time. Although she had nothing to counter the German 42cm cannons, Russia did have a decent number of medium caliber howitzers, with about 700 155s and 107s ready to go when the call came. As he was also Chief of Staff, Zhukominov had a major influence in overall strategy, and his most controversial decision was to leave part of Russian Poland devoid of any military presence. As the threat of Germany and Austria-Hungary increased, Zhukominov had angered many traditionalists by shifting around the various army groups to meet the western threats. As we saw way back in episodes 17 and 18, it was because of this rotation that the Eastern Front played out exactly as it did. The Russian 1st and 2nd armies, under Renenkamp and Samsonov, were positioned on the border of East Prussia. These were the two armies annihilated at Tannenberg in the subsequent Battle of the Maesjergen Lakes. While in the south, four additional armies were stationed on the Carpathian Front. These were the groups which stifled Conrad's invasion of Glacia in the war's opening weeks. Despite the disasters in East Prussia, which was brought on through the incompetence of Reninkov and Samsonov, Russia's early war played out exactly as Sukhomlinov had envisioned. That is until the war did not end by Christmas. Because Tsarist Russia was the most conservative and autocratic of the great powers, it was still stuck in that old medieval mindset where all power was invested in the state. Public participation and opinion meant very little, since most of Russia's 170 million inhabitants were rural peasants. Although there was major migration into urban centers, 68% of the population remained stuck to their land plots like medieval serfs. This too meant that outside wealthy circles in the aristocracy, literacy rates were incredibly low. For example, 61% of Russia's rank and file could not read or write, compared to just 2% in French, German, and British armies. This is part of the reason why First World War histories tend to be Western Front focused. There's just a lot more written sources to piece things together from. Another reason, too, being that in the chaos of the revolution, many of the literate Russian officers were hunted down by the Bolsheviks and the subsequent terrors. So resources are scarce. To this day, the National Archives in Russia are open to just a select few. And I once had a professor in university say that one of the only ways to get access is to befriend someone in the military. The easiest way to do that, he said, and I quote, depended entirely on how much you can drink. I have no idea how true that is, but for some reason I totally believe it. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked here. As I was saying before, when the war dragged on into 1915, there was a problem. Russian state finances had not planned for a prolonged war. Indeed, none of the belligerents had of course, but Russia was the least prepared for the necessary overhaul. In peacetime, Russian industries were fiercely centralized, and under Tsarist administration, only factories which were licensed through state ownership were able to operate at any level of capacity. But the years 1906-1914 to saw a slow but undeniable change to Russia's financial playing field. Largely due to improved relations with France and Great Britain, foreign investors had paved the way for a budding private sector, composed of up-and-coming businessmen eager to begin their climb up the greasy pole. But due to state monopoly on production controls, private enterprises were largely restricted unless they had sponsored contracts, that is, a lateral agreement where the state would agree to purchase such and such an amount relevant to a private business's output. Now, I'm not an economist, so I'm simplifying this a great deal, but basically, state contracts operated like a permission slip. If you were lucky enough to get them, you were okay, but if you were caught operating without them, you were in big trouble. For the Tsarist administrators, this practice was a way of ensuring quality control, and in peacetime it worked well when things were easily monitored. But once the war got underway, and setbacks in the field exposed the outdated apparatus, it did not take long for things to come to a head. The problem was that Sukomlinov and the Minister of Interior, Nikolai Maklakov were known to be a bit tight on the purse strings. As both were staunch monarchists, the two men held a powerful resentment of private industry. Unlike, say, Britain, for example, which would convert private factories into military use, nothing of the sort happened in Russia, or at least not in the amount that was needed. Private enterprises were roaring to go, but state contracts sat collecting dust, while brand new blast furnaces ran cold. The hated interior minister, Maklikov, even went out of his way to piss off the commercial sector by offering contracts outside of Russia. Arms manufacturers in the United States, like Remington, and Vickers in Britain, thus got dibs in war materials before the workers at home did. This decision produced a double whammy, because as Britain and France focused on converting themselves into a total war economy, the Russian orders sat on the backburners. Shipments were late, and in many cases were ineffective because British made fuses would not work with Russian-made nitrates. To show just how unprepared Russia was, work orders for English and French factories were not translated from Cyrillic, or used units which needed conversion into Western metrics. Although Russia was facing a major literacy crisis, its people were not stupid. It can tell right away when management was dropping the ball. So when the Austro-German armies unleashed the Eastern Campaign in the spring of 1915, it came with a silver lining. All the dysfunction that was swept under the rug could no longer be hidden. As the underarmed Russian army fell back, they abandoned stockpiles of artillery shell in the Polish fortresses, once very symbols of Tsar's strength. The setback at the front served to break much of the social cohesion behind the lines. In June, Moscow was crippled by a strike. The German embassy, along with German-language newspapers and store owners, were ransacked, as anger became widespread. In some cases, English and French citizens became targets as well, as many felt Russia's Entente allies had failed her in her time of need. But for the Duma, it was clear that this disaster was brought upon because the state's management skills were an absolute joke. Factories sat idle or were closing due to lack of work, and why were men being sent to the front without personal rifles while unused shells sat to rust in archaic forts? At the fortress outside Vilna, for example, almost 1,300 guns and 900,000 rounds of shell were left for the combined armies like a greeting gift. Things had come home to Russia in a bad way. Vladimir Sukomanov became the obvious target, and the members in the Duma began plotting his downfall. Leaders of the various political parties ordered an investigation into the state's financial dealings. By mid-May 1915, a special body, the War Industries Committee, was organized to probe the deficiencies in the state-run industries. At the head of the War Industries Committee was a man by the name of Alexander Guchkov, who has, over the years, emerged as a sort of cult hero in Russian history. He'll be a major figure leading up to the revolution as well, so I want to pause and flesh him out a bit before we continue on with our discussion. Alexander Guchkov lived nothing short of a roller coaster life. Born in 1862 to a successful Moscow businessman and French mother, Guchkov was exposed to a wide range of political theories in his early age. But what gave him particular pride was that his grandfather was a penniless serf, so young Alexander could always trace his heritage back to the common people. In his early 20s, Guchkov studied political science at universities in Moscow and Berlin, but the academic life didn't suit him, instead opting to leave his studies and begin traveling the world. He rode horseback across the Mongolian steppes, fought, and I'm assuming won, numerous duels in Manchuria, and hiked along the Great Wall of China. He even found time to volunteer to fight the English during the South African War, where he was wounded and captured. Seriously, this guy has a very decorated past. The year 1904 found him back in Russia, where he joined the Russian Red Cross on the eve of the Japanese war. Due to his education, he was given a fairly influential role, eventually developing a personal correspondence with the Tsarina's elder sister, Elizabeth. And no, the relationship was strictly professional, at least as far as I can tell. Naturally, Russia's military performance in the war exposed to Guchkov the badly needed reforms of the Tsarist regime, and criticized Nicholas by saying, The emperor judges principles by personalities, and it is impossible to do things that way. After the war, Guchkov remained in Russia, where he became one of those eager entrepreneurs wanting to break into the political strata. In 1907, his first taste of politics came when he was elected to the Duma as the head of the Octoberists, a just-right-from-center party whose main body support came from the affluent business and commercial communities. Now I should stop here and explain what exactly the Duma was, because I have criminally neglected it up to this point. And since Russia will begin its slide into chaos by the end of 1916, now would be a good time to help shed some light on it. Essentially, the Duma was Russia's representative parliament, at both a municipal and state level. Without muddying the waters, there were numerous smaller Dumas scattered throughout the country. But for our purposes, when we talk of the Duma, we are referring to the Imperial Duma located in St. Petersburg, the main one. Russia's experiment with democracy began after its disastrous war with Japan. As you'll remember from way back in Episode 7, the fall of Port Arthur touched off widespread unrest at home. Mass strikes, crippled infrastructure, and sections of the Navy, famously the battleship Potemkin, mutinied in protest. The peak of the unrest came in early January 1905, when a peaceful crowd descended on the Winter Palace, demanding constitutional reform. Unfortunately, the Tsar was not in residence that day, and at some point between ten and eleven in the morning on January the twenty second, The guard stationed outside received orders to fire on the crowd. Nearly 100 people died, with another 300 being wounded in the massacre. Not even the most hardened aristocrat could deny that changes were needed. In order to ensure his regime, and possibly his life, Tsar Nicholas issued the October Manifesto in the autumn of 1905. The October Manifesto guaranteed the creation of an elected parliament, the Duma, which had the authority to veto and ensure civil rights without state interference. Now this all sounds very rosy, but it didn't last long. As the Duma parties were being formed, an extra clause was added which allowed the Tsar to uphold the old fundamental laws of 1832, which effectively gave him total control over the Duma. Of course, he wasted no time in doing this, and less than a year after its creation, the Duma was subservient to the Tsar in almost every aspect. If election results did not suit him, it could be dissolved and re-elections would need to be held with new candidates. Election terms were set to run on a five-year cycle. But due to Tsar Nicholas's paranoia, there were three elections in the first two years. It was not until 1907 when the third Duma, that is the third election cycle, produced results which would last the full term. Now, without getting too involved, power in the Duma was jockeyed over by five main parties. The Constitutional Democrats, the Socialist Revolutionaries, the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, and the Octoberists. We'll get to each one once we get into the revolution. But for our discussion this week, the Octoberists are of pretty big importance, especially since our friend, Alexander Kuchkov, just got himself elected as party head. The reason Tsar Nicholas did not order another Duma election was because the Octoberists were the only party which aligned closely to the monarchy. Being a just-right-from-center party, the Octoberists were largely made up of industrialists and businessmen who managed to thread the narrow needle of the Tsarist regime. In a nutshell, the Octoberists believed Russia would be better suited as a constitutional monarchy. Guchkov included; they were not opposed to the czarist institution as a whole. The Romanovs could stay, but laws and civil liberties should be at the behest of the parliamentary representation. Basically, they wanted what the czar had laid out back in the 1905 October Manifesto. Hence, why they call themselves the Octoberists. With Guchkov as head of the party. The Octoberists were able to organize what appeared for the first time to be a more unified Duma. With war against Germany and Austria-Hungary looming after the crisis in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Guchkov was heavily critical of military budgeting and state finances. This inevitably brought him into serious contention with Vladimir Sukominov, who had a tendency to dismiss anything coming from the Duma as mere shriekery. When the next election cycle came in 1912, the Octoberists faced a split vote but Guchkov remained on as party leader. Upon the declaration of war in 1914, Guchkov was back working for the Red Cross, where he had built up a solid collection of contacts in his travels. One in particular, Colonel Sergei Meyozhedev, a lackey of Sukhaminov, already once convicted of spying on army officers for the war minister. More on that in a minute. So in the late spring of 1915, when the Duma announced the War Industries Committee, Guchkov was the logical choice. The mission of the War Industries Committee was to determine how the business as usual approach of the state was affecting Russia's military abilities. Bringing in industrial magnates, businessmen, engineers, and scientists from a wide range of mechanical, clothing, chemical, transportation, medical, and food sectors, the committee concluded that Russia's situation was worse than anyone could have expected. Pre war stockpiles had been tapped dry, and throughout the winter of 1915 1916, some 4.5 million men, between the ages of 18 and 24, were called up to fill out the ranks following the retreat. However, state-operated factories were producing less than 47,000 rifles per month. The situation was so bad that frontline troops were offered bonus rations in return for collecting unused rifles and ammunition. Living costs had skyrocketed as well. Bread prices tripled despite a decline in quality, and by the winter of 1915, a new pair of shoes would cost an urban worker three months' wages. Even worse was food distribution. Prior to the war, Russia exported an annual 11 million tons of grain, primarily to her closest neighbors, Germany and Austria-Hungary. But with the trade now cut off, the grain sat idle. Wealthy landowners hoarded grain shipments in order to drive up prices. Silos were bursting at the seams, yet in the urban centers, malnutrition was becoming commonplace. In St. Petersburg, the Tsar could no longer pretend that things were copacetic. The findings of the committee, coincided with the retreat at the front, had forced the Tsar to make amends. In June of 1915, Vladimir Sukomanov was dismissed as Minister of War, but his removal came just as evidence regarding his relationship with Colonel Sergei Meozhadev was becoming public knowledge. Now, sources regarding the Meozhadev affair are scarce. The Colonel, who had been living in Germany prior to the war, was allowed to return to Russia on the condition that he would operate as a German contact at the Stavka. However, according to Norman Stone, Meyozhedev had a change of heart, and essentially outed himself by informing Stavka that there was a spy operating in the Northwest Army Group near the Mejurian Lakes. Further investigations later proved that Meyozhedev was on the personal payroll of the outgoing war minister, and in fact, that Zoukhamonov had knowingly employed him as a spy in times past. As a testament to how influential Zoukhamonov was, The only way to get the Tsar to sign off on his dismissal was for Guchkov and the committee to make a dog and pony show out of the arrest and subsequent trial of the colonel. Stavka paraded the evidence in newspapers as if they had just found Atlantis, despite the fact that Meyoshidev had purposely left a paper trail a mile long. Public reaction to the news was immediate. Stavka tried and executed the colonel after a mock trial, and Zhukominov, who escaped execution, would be discharged from service in March of 1916. The old minister of war would meet a non-momentous end. His marriage to a woman with expensive tastes was a constant strain on his bank account, and after a brief sentence to a hard labour camp, managed to flee the country just after the Bolshevik takeover in October 1917. Zhukomlinov eventually ended up in Berlin, where he was found frozen to death on a park bench in 1926. In the aftermath of the Great Retreat, the command structure in Russia underwent some rapid changes the Grand Duke Nicholas was dismissed, along with his Chief of Staff Nikolai Yanuchkovich. Of course, the Tsar himself stepped into the role of Commander-in-Chief, and to the Tsar's credit, countered that horrible decision by appointing General Mikhail Alexeyev as his Chief of Staff. In addition, Zhukominov was replaced with the more competent Alexey Polivanov as Minister of War. Under this new management, largely with Mikhail Alexeyev and Alexey Polivanov, Russia was able to begin her rebound from the 1915 disasters. Polivanov, an army engineer by training, put logistics, conscription, and training on a much stronger basis, while Alexeyev rounded out a far more competent command staff, notably elevating Alexei Brusilov to take over the southwestern front in Glacia. As her French and British allies were getting their industries up to speed, so too were they able to ramp up aid to Russia. For a blip period, it seemed that the vaunted Russian steamroller might be able to get back to her feet. Employment increased, factories were producing at a much higher level, and the ranks in the army were beginning to be filled with officers who were promoted through wartime commissions and not social standings. Although the Russian turnaround heading into 1916 is pretty remarkable, all the theory, production, and training meant very little unless it could be proven on the battlefield. After the German attack at Verdun, Zoshevzhov had called on his allies to launch relief offensives. Due to their preemptiveness of the attack, it was the Russians who found themselves in the best position to counterattack with force in early 1916. At the beginning of the year, her army had approximately 4.7 million men in its ranks, 4.4 million to face the Austro-German armies, with a change being used against the Turks in the Caucasus. Although Alexeyev and Polivanov advised that no offensive should be taken until war industries could supply the necessary munitions, the serious situation at Verdun, and the Tsar's blind loyalty to France, forced Alexeyev to attack before things were ready. The chosen location was in the region around Lake Narach, in modern-day Belarus. Due to Falkenhayn's shift to the Western Front, the German presence in the area was negligible, some 600,000 Germans to 1.2 million combat-ready Russian troops. In the 400 hundred-kilometer sector, 550 Russian battalions were amassed across from 200 German. Better transportation and infrastructure allowed for a build-up not yet seen since the opening days of the war. But it was a clumsy build-up. No care was taken to mask the movement of arms, and it did not take long before German intelligence detected the preparations. The terrain covering Lake Narach was flat, heavily forested, and an early thaw had overflowed rivers and turned the surrounding fields into swamplands. Roads were impassable, and men were forced to slog their way through knee-deep mud on their way to the front. A thick fog descended on the battlefield. All the makings of a catastrophe were set. The Battle of Lake Narach was a total disaster. From the 16th to the 29th of March, 1916, Russian advances were shot down despite outnumbering their opponents 5 to 1. Almost 350,000 Russians attacked a line defended by just 75,000 Germans. The opening barrage of over 1,000 guns was the most intense bombardment the Russians undertook to date, but it was also the most fruitless. Ineffective fuses and poorly made shell casings resulted in more duds than live rounds. As a result, barbed wire remained uncut and nowhere did Russian soldiers penetrate more than two kilometers. Coordination between artillery and infantry was non-existent, and in one sector, German defenders watched with horror as advancing Russians were blown to pieces by their own confused artillery fire. Terror-stricken conscripts sent to the front with just three weeks of training wandered aimlessly among the carnage. Several hundred reportedly drowned after being ordered to attack through uncharted swamps. When the attack was finally called off on the 29th of March, the results were appalling. Russian losses are difficult to place, but modern sources put them between 80 and 100,000 casualties, compared to just 25,000 German. In the days following the attack, German infantry had the grisly task of removing 5,000 corpses caught in the wire entanglements. It was, in every sense of the word, an abysmal failure. Lake Narach is one of those truly dark chapters of the war. No matter how you spin it, it's really difficult to find anything positive. Besides showing to Nicholas and Alexeyev that Russia needed time to develop industry and retrain her army, it had no impact on the overall strategic picture. But it did have a major influence on the Russian psyche. A belief was settling in that no matter what they tried, Russia's armed forces were simply too inadequate to compete with Germany's. Tannenberg, Majorian Lakes, Glacier, Poland, the loss of Serbia, and now Lake Narach, seemed to prove that Germany was too formidable an opponent for Russia to handle. This excuse, of course, would not fly with Jafar Haig, but what if Russia borrowed a page from Falkenhayn's book? The same way the German chief wanted to knock out Britain by attacking the French, the Russians could pressure Germany by attacking her ally, Austria-Hungary. Indeed, her performances against the dual monarchy were more positive, and with Conrad van Hutzendorf obsessing over the Italian front, maybe the time to steal back some of the momentum was at hand. In the immediate aftermath of the Narach offensive, Stavka highlighted a few key areas for improvement. The first was that artillery and infantry tactics remained incredibly rudimentary. At Verdun, for example, French and German artillery was organized in such a way that the heaviest caliber guns were given specific tasks, knocking out fortifications, rail stations, and of course, other heavy guns. At Narach, the 1st, 2nd, and 5th Army commanders had not given this any thought. Although an assortment of 1,000 guns was assembled, there was no synchronization between the batteries, so the opening bombardment was widely inaccurate, with shells falling all over the place instead of a concentrated area. The failure of the heavy guns meant that the infantry was left exposed. Since the battle followed the Great Retreat, a lull period between September and March allowed the armies to dig in and fortify new lines. The front now resembled that of the Western Front, meaning that Russian infantry would need to quickly adopt a trench warfare and in order to do that, would need to be supplied and trained. Hand grenades, helmets, mortars, and entrenching tools were slowly becoming standard issue, but it also required skills which had always been in short supply. Literacy. Map making, wireless telegraphy, gun trajectory, and trench logistics were all at a premium. To counter this, conscripts entering the army, regardless of their ethnicity, were given basic literacy training in order to help centralize command. It was to be a long road to be sure, but small steps which would ensure that when Alexei Brusilov's army group rumbled to life, these lessons had begun to take hold. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources, email, and Twitter information if you wish to get in touch with me. Questions, comments, and feedback of any kind are always more than welcome. I'd like to give a shout out to two listeners this week. The first is Andrew from Northeastern Massachusetts and Jeff from Edmonton, Alberta, who generously donated to the show. Thank you very much for the donation guys, it is greatly appreciated. If you want to be like Andrew and Jeff, or our other generous donors, you'll find the donate button on the homepage. There's no limit to your donation, but every little bit helps and goes a long way to keeping the show going. Another way to help out the show is to look us up on iTunes in the Apple Store and write a quick 5 star review, which will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to continue turning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.